Boy, did I ever have a weird dream last night. That temporary unicorn horn's still messing with you, huh? What was the dream about? I dreamt I turned Boyan into a sunflower lion. Boy, do I feel funny today. Somewhat cat-like. And, how do you say, a bit seedy? Uh, yeah. Any, any other dreams we should know about? I'll go get the book on unicorn magic. This season of the Bug Hunters Cafe is made possible by Softerific, Mouse Paw Media, and Manning Publications. And is that a lion with a sunflower head? I will never understand high fashion. Here's your jug of water. Thank you. I never thought being half-flowered could be such a thirsty work. Annie's working on reversing this, don't worry. I'm just hoping my new look won't interfere with our conversation with uh, Reven Lerner. He travels around the world teaching Python to developers and non-developers alike, drawing from over 20 years software engineering experience. Well, we're about to find out. Hey, Reuben. Hey there. Hi, guys. Nice to see you. Hey, have a seat. Don't mind Boyan, he got turned into a sunflower lion, but it's temporary. <laughs> good, 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 good. <laughs> uh, can I get you anything to drink? The uh, coffee or whatever you like is on Soft Terrific. They're sponsoring the docs. Oh, terrific. I'm usually a tea kind of guy, so I'll have some tea, please. Okay, what kind? Red, black, white, green, orange, purple? Uh, <laughs> purple tea. I'll, I'll just go for some uh, plain old uh, black tea with a little milk on the side. All right, will do. I will get that for you. And Boyan, your use or well, that's right. Uh, I just brought you the jug of water. I'm a flower now. Yeah, yeah you got your jug. No, of water. no. I just want uh, also some tea and espresso tea without any coffee. That's my new favorite flavor. Okay, I'll make sure it's cold so you can just kind of sip it more easily, being a flower and all. Yes. Okay. Cool. I'll be right back. Thank you so much. Uh. So, Ruan, I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, how did you get uh, here? It's a very exclusive club. Well, you guys invited me, and you gave me the way in. Otherwise, I'm not sure I would have found it so well. So if it hadn't been for you, I don't know if it would have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I love your work you're doing with uh, mentoring. I believe we talked earlier a uh, few times. Yes, yes, yes. We spoke... I want to say about a year or so ago, something like that, roughly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Look, I feel extremely, extremely fortunate to have the work that I do, basically teaching and teaching people who want to learn and teaching smart people who want to learn and, shall we say, challenge me with hard questions. Well, let me try that. What is the hardest question you have been asked? Ooh, ooh that is a good question. I just got one about, I want to say two weeks ago, where someone was trying, I don't know if it was the best question ever, but it was a pretty good one, trying to figure out why he was getting strange results using the walrus operator inside of an F string. And basically, it turned out to be that because the colon is part of the walrus operator, and it's also used before the format string like the format directive in the F string, 
the parser was getting confused. And so basically it was a whole mess. So I went down quite the rabbit hole there, looking at bytecodes, looking at the parsing, trying to figure out what was going on. And when we finally figured it out, I was like, huh, that is way more complex than I ever, ever would have expected. But I, I like that sort of thing. I like how it, when you can sometimes answer a question, even if it takes a while, it, it involves connecting many, many different dots in ways that you wouldn't have previously expected. That's quite an amazing journey. I don't think I ever uh, got down to the bytecode uh, to see what was causing the issue. Well, so yeah, so I've been doing this now for a few years, and not in my intro classes, but typically in my advanced classes. I use the, the dis module, and specifically the dis.dis function. And if you apply that to a function, it shows you the bytecodes that a Python function has been turned into, that the compiler has turned it into, and you can sort of walk through it and see what it thinks is going on. So sometimes it's interesting just sort of see how Python thinks about things. Sometimes it's interesting to find out how a function operates and works. And sometimes it really reveals all sorts of wild stuff behind the scenes. So I'll give you an example. You might know that if you have a for loop in Python, uh, you know, for i in range 10, whatever it's going to be, that that variable i is going to get assigned to in each of the iterations. And when you're done with the loop, the variable i still has that. It's still at the global level or if you're in a function in the local level. But if you do a loop in a list comprehension, the variable is not assigned to afterwards. It's as if nothing happened. I was like, okay, there's obviously some magic going on here. I don't quite understand it. For years, I'd say, yeah, it's sort of like there's the LEGB rule for local and closing global built-ins in Python. And I would say, yeah, there's kind of like a half extra one going on in a comprehension. And that never sat well with me because magic is not supposed to go along well with Python. And so I finally used dis.dis and broke down something with a comprehension. And lo and behold, it turns out that a comprehension has a hidden function inside of it. That when you have a comprehension, it basically compiles a function object, keeps it inside there, and then refers to it from within the comprehension, thus creating a new local function scope, thus ensuring the variables don't leak out. And suddenly, the model becomes very simple again, despite the fact that it's doing all this magical stuff. So that's the sort of thing that dis.dis can sort of reveal to you. Um, again, it's not for everyone all the time. It's not going to make you write better code, but it'll explain some of the mysteries from behind the scenes. That is absolutely amazing. I didn't know that about the list comprehensions. Nor did I before I started looking into it. I, and again, that someone said to me, that someone gave me this great saying a, a number of years ago, which is good questions are when the student does not know the answer and excellent questions are when the instructor does not know the answer. And I love getting, as it were, excellent questions. I love it when I say, I have no idea, let's explore it together. And so I might be using Python now for 30 some odd years, but like at the end of the day, I'm still learning new stuff every day. And that's thanks to my students asking me these sorts of excellent questions, which is just like, I'm paid to learn new things about Python. What could be bad? <laughs> <laughs> here's your uh, T. Reuven, and uh, here's uh, your cold brew without coffee, William. Thank you. Uh, sorry for the delay. Lincoln ate Grant's breakfast again. <laughs> Jason, we were talking about how magic in Python doesn't mix. What was the most magical uh, thing you saw in Python? Because you're also teaching people about programming and stuff. Yeah, look, so right, so that's all I do, right? I, I used to do general consulting and software projects and also the different things. And 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I said, no, I'm just going to switch to do only training. And so, right, I have this opportunity to see people every day at all different levels. 
Look, the newbies, the people who are completely and utterly new to programming, for them it really is magical, right? Like the fact that you can type these instructions and have something execute, and at a fundamental level, that's still pretty amazing to me, that I can type something and control a computer and have it do all sorts of stuff. Like when you think about it, holy cow, that's amazing. I don't know, the most amazing thing I've ever seen in Python, most magical thing. Okay, so like I've recently been talking with people quite a bit about, I've given some talks, I can't remember where, a few different places, including, uh, I guess, PyCon US this year, about attributes. And so attributes sort of depend on this thing known as descriptors. And descriptors are like the deepest, biggest black magic in all of Python. And they are fundamental to how the language works. Things wouldn't work without them. You wouldn't have methods, for example, you know, as a minor example. But understanding them and how they work and how you can work with them is really, really like complex stuff at the end of the day. And it's pretty amazing to me how they were able to come up with this system. And I'm sure it went through many iterations, but they came up with a system that to the end user is pretty simple and transparent, but to the implementer is pretty complex. And you can sort of go as deep into those weeds as you want with you know, instances and classes and additional objects and layers of objects and weak references to keep track of things. Like, and all of that comes together in order for descriptors to work. I'll say, before I really understood them and sort of took them for granted, decorators also seem kind of magical. And I'm like, oh yeah, I've been using them for long enough. That's old hat. But to people who are new to them, they're just sort of, you know, blown away and fall off their chairs uh, when they see what you can do with them. Yeah, I mean, that was, I have to say, that was actually the inspiration behind the title for my book, Dead Simple Python, because I remember when I first brought that up to Naomi Cedar, who wrote forward, she's like, really, Dead Simple Concurrency? Are you crazy? And I said, well, <laughs> it's not Dead Simple looking forward. It's Dead Simple once you know it. Then you look backward and go, of course it works that way. Is there another way for it to work? That just makes sense. And there's so much of that in Python, I noticed, where even something as complex as, say, meta classes, once you wrap your head around it, it's kind of like, duh. <laughs> but, but you don't feel that way until you really get to the other side of all of it and get through all that reasoning, and then you look backward and go, you know, that just makes a lot of sense. Why are more languages not using this? Right, right. But it's only possible because of that consistency, because everything's an object. Every object has a class. Classes are also objects. Type is an object because it's a class. So why can't we just subclass type? Like once you sort of walk through all those pieces, it seems fairly straightforward. Now, why would you want meta classes is another question entirely. Um, I can also tell you that like from experience trying to teach people about these things, that by the time you get to meta classes, as I often say, like their brains are kind of spilling out of their ears. Um, and they're like, <laughs> enough, enough. When do I need this? I'm like, oh yeah, you don't need this. And indeed companies used to ask me to, to teach meta classes. And at a certain point, I just said, you really don't need this. Like, you really, really don't. Like, I can mention it briefly, but to actually talk about it and practice it is really a waste of time. And so we've sort of moved away from that. I never, ever uh, saw a meta class in the wild. Outside of examples, I can't tell you some of it. I've actually written a meta class in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> tell us more. <laughs> Yeah, my impression is that meta classes are really, if you're like building frameworks and other such things where you have a whole lot of classes, you want to have them to have some kind of, uh, you know, similar functionality without inheritance. But I also, I've never had a need for that. But, you know, the world's a big, messy place and there are lots of projects out there, some of which need that sort of thing. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you don't need it until you know you need it. I mean, it's helpful to kind of have the gist of an idea. And the big thing to know about meta classes, so there's there's obviously there's dictionaries of the different layers. You have the dictionary that all the attributes are stored on on the instance. And then where are the instance methods stored? And the class attributes stored, those are all stored on the class dictionary. So if the instance methods are stored on the class dictionary, where are the class methods stored? That's on the meta class. And as soon as you have to start doing anything more complicated with your class methods, like you would with instant methods, you are immediately in the meta classes because that's the only place you can actually modify that behavior. But most of the time you don't need to do anything fancy with meta classes. But I would say like the one place where you're gonna run into it is if you're trying to do any sort of more complicated patterns e.g. properties or anything like that that you normally do with an instance, but you need singleton-like behavior. You're going to wind up on the meta class sooner or later, either through abstract base classes or directly, because you either need to implement the singleton pattern directly, which you don't want to do through the meta class, or you're going to muck about with your class methods, which is on the meta class. That's kind of where that winds up coming into play. I only run into that because I've done enough GUI work that you know the singleton pattern or singleton like pattern comes up enough to need it, but even with all that, it's still only ever used meta classes once. <laughs> wow! I'm sorry. What's what's GUI work? GUI uh, graphical user interface. Oh, oh GUI. Oh, I okay, got it. Yeah, building desktop applications, what have you. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Doing GUI stuff is not. I know almost nothing about it, and generally, I say to people. Don't do that. Just make web applications, um, which is very easy for me to say because I've been doing web applications for a long time, right? So, I mean, not not so recently, <laughs> but uh, everyone's opinion on the best way to do something is their favorite way to do it. So that said, that said, there's so many different GUI frameworks out there, and it's such a small proportion of the Python community that uses them. I'm always like, if you go with web stuff, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but you'll have a larger community to fall back on as opposed to things being complex or undocumented. But sometimes there's no choice. You gotta have a desktop, you know, user interface sometimes. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy I enjoy desktop work. Yeah, usually I tell people Python is good for everything except uh, user interfaces and threading. Those are eh, not quite as good as the rest of the system. Though I I I have built GUIs in a few different languages, and Python's by far my favorite because it just the amount of boilerplate you end up having to do in a setup with type language to get a user interface working is obscene, <laughs> and Python is that? very minimal on that. And then once you factor in that a good framework is going to be able to handle things like system calls, and uh, and Python's really good with system level integration. Not to mention that there are ways of optimizing performance bottlenecks. Then actually, it's very good for for building very robust GUIs in a short time frame that are every bit as reliable as something you produce in C plus plus, but takes a quarter of the time. Very interesting. Very very interesting. Every so often, people say to me like, "Oh, it's really not that bad. You should try doing some like you know user interface stuff, graphical user interface stuff." And I say, "Okay, great idea," and I just don't have time to do it. But clearly people like, you know, like you just like people are able to do it. And I totally believe 
what you said, which is it takes way less time because you have to deal with the boilerplate, which I remember back in the recesses of my memory from oh so many years ago, dealing with static languages and that. As for Boyan's point about like, it's not so good for threading, I would say sort of. It depends on what you're doing, right? Like, so if you're trying to do CPU bound, serious calculations, yeah, don't, don't do that. <laughs> if you're doing IO bound stuff, not so bad. Like, not ideal, but not, not the end of the world. Yeah, I mean, threading works great there. And async uh, is wonderful with uh, blocking stuff. And uh, for GPU-intensive stuff, you either have to go multi-processing uh, or you have to go to C modules and do the stuff there. That's right. Yeah, right. data science uses a lot of it. I mean, you got, um, you've got things like NumPy and... and uh, SciPy and Pandas and all that. And and they're, like you mentioned, the C modules. Modin, by the way, if any of you ever winds up working with Pandas and you need cheap speed gains, Modin is a drop and replacement for Pandas that's actually already multi-threaded. So I think Modin like, used to be called something else. And so I was getting very confused as to all these different parallelized versions of Pandas. And so there's still a bunch that I want to look at and play with because I haven't really done more than just download them and do some like toy stuff with them. But um, Modin is definitely on my list to take a look at. And from what I remember, I think I just looked at it like last week very, very briefly. Like I read a, a page or two about it. And they say basically we've implemented almost the entirety of the Pandas API. So you just go and run with it and you configure in advance to say how many threads you want or how many processes you want. Even if it's, I think they even do multiple servers if you want to sort of distribute it across machines. Boom. And I think that's going to be a huge, huge boon to people working with large data sets. What I don't quite understand, and again, this is probably like just an indication of A, how much things are in flux, and B, how much I'm not keeping up with it. I know that Apache Arrow is playing an increasingly important role in the Pandas world. And I think that Arrow is planning to be distributed also. So how that all works together, I'm not quite sure. But I know that, look, now that NumPy and Pandas are used so extensively by so many people with increasingly large data sets. This is a problem that's just like ripe for the, you know, the solving. And it seems like a lot of people are working very hard on it, which is good. Hopefully, once hopefully I can learn about more. <laughs> Not to mention the improvements at the CPython level, because, you know, Microsoft's been paying for, for that work. I have been, A, astonished by the turnaround in Microsoft as a company regarding open source, and B, impressed by all the efforts they're putting into Python. I mean, years ago, years and years ago, when I was working for Linux Journal, I can't remember if it was the publisher or the editor, someone sent me an email saying, hey, what do you think? Microsoft wants to advertise in Linux Journal. Is that okay? Do we want their money? And I was like, yes, it is money. It is okay. But there was a lot of worry about how would it look for Microsoft, those people, to be giving us money for an open source magazine. And now Microsoft is one of the strongest contributors to open source in general. And especially on the Python front, they've been hiring a whole bunch of really impressive people. And they are pushing for Python to be faster. And I think within a year or two, they're already saying that 3.11 is coming out this autumn, like another month or so it's supposed to. They're saying it's going to be twice as fast as 3.9 was. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Not that I have any great expertise in programming language design or optimization, but I have to guess that there's a lot of similarity under the hood or there could be between JavaScript and Python. And given how fast JavaScript runs now, I have to assume there's a lot 
a room for Python to be improved as well. Barrett Simmel was making the snarky extrapolation that given the speed gains between 3.9, 3.10, and 3.11, that by 3.14 it'll be faster than C++. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I think it'll probably level out plateau at some point in the proceedings, but just saying, but you know, then again, you know, Microsoft hired Widows, so maybe he'll have some black magic up his sleeve. I mean, people have been asking for optimization forever, and he still, I presume, has that time machine of his somewhere around. He's probably got a park <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> What's amazing is you have these people who are very, very serious, like, language and compiler experts now, who are working on the Python core and who have done all this experimentation of, well, what if we did this and what if we did that? Some of which are like really, really smart and some of which are like still smart, but more obvious in retrospect. So for example, just before EuroPython, I heard about uh, the plan, I think it was on the Talk Python podcast, where they, they were talking about this new pep about um, lazy imports, where when you say import, it's not going to actually import right away. Rather, what's going to happen is it's going to say, okay, I'm going to have a placeholder here. And when you actually access one of the attributes on that module, then we're actually going to import it and load it. And I was like, oh my God, why would that not work? Right? Because now you import and this whole cascade of imports runs and just slows down your startup time. And so by sort of spreading that across your entire program, then it'll feel faster, even if it's not actually faster. And apparently this works really well. It's going to be, an, I want to say 312. So that seemed to me like brilliant and obvious in retrospect. A lot of the non-obvious things are like, well, when we look up attributes, we can cache in this way and this way and this way, and we can do some bytecode uh, uh, optimizations, things that other languages have been doing, but people in the Python community have been sort of scared to mess with on the assumption that we want the bytecodes to reflect exactly what the Python code said, and do none of this rewriting that other languages do. But I think it's almost inevitable that's going to happen. Hmm. So uh, another space I'm curious if you got insight on because this is outside of my. See, I don't have much experience in web. Like, well, you don't you don't do a lot in GUI. I don't do a lot in web. I've done a little, just enough to get me in trouble. But Python in the browser has been bandied about uh, a lot in the last few years, and there's five or six experimental implementations. What's your take on that? So I didn't really play with any of the implementations that much over the years. I sort of looked a little bit of the documentation. I said, okay, this seems interesting, that seems interesting. But all of them basically seem to be Python to JavaScript translators. And it's not inherently bad, it's just like, and people kept saying, well, maybe JavaScript is the new assembly language. Maybe it's the new target for everyone's languages. Um, what I was completely ignorant of until just a few months ago, I kept hearing the term WebAssembly, WASM, bandied about. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. I'm sure it's just like a, another name for JavaScript. And I was completely and utterly wrong on that. Where WASM really is, it's an assembly language. It's a stack machine that runs inside your browser. And here's the amazing thing, that if you write something in WASM, it has access to JavaScript, and JavaScript has access to it. It is running at exactly the same level as JavaScript. Well, then at uh, PyCon US in, I guess it was April, Anaconda announced that they've been working on PyScript. And PyScript is a version of Python that compiles down to WASM, meaning it is not compiling to JavaScript. It's compiling to that same super fast assembly language layer that fits in the browser. And that's why PyScript is so different and really such a game changer that even 
people like me have been like, yeah, whatever, about previous things are super, super excited about. The notion that you can get very fast, very stable Python running inside your browser, interoperating with JavaScript. So JavaScript can call it, it can call JavaScript. They already have things like NumPy running inside of there. I think this is a massive game changer. Like this could really upend the whole Python ecosystem and the computer world. And my big prediction is, and I'll just keep it as a moving window, but two years from now, so in a year I'll say it's still two years from now, we're going to see front-end web applications written in Python. Meaning, why would you write in JavaScript with, say, React or something like that, when you can use some sort of Python bindings to React, have a more consistent, standardized language available to you, and then get that whole ecosystem of Python stuff without the wild west of JavaScript. I think this is almost inevitable, and I think it's going to mark a sea change in many, many ways. Or I should say a web assembly change in many, many ways. It's, it's going to be a big, big deal. Oh my gosh. I need to contact Sebastian from Fast API and tell him to write Fast Frontend. <laughs> I'm telling you, someone somewhere out there is going to run with this. And I have done teensy, teensy, weensy things with PyScript. And the little I've done, and it's really like, like you know, three lines, five lines, has completely blown me away. I've been doing some research into WebAssembly because it seems so fascinating to me. And I just want to like have an understanding of what's going on there. But I keep thinking, okay, I need to spend some time over the next six months learning PyScript, learning WebAssembly, and putting together some training in this because I expect a year, year and a half from now, this is going to be massive. Matt, let me just give you one example from my work. Right, so I teach Python every day. One of my favorite classes to teach is Python for non-programmers. So I come to companies where there's people who don't know programming, or maybe they like, as I like to put it, they took a course in high school or university, and that scared them away for good. But they now need it. They are network administrators who are being told by their employers, you need to implement Python APIs. Um, they're being told, they're managers who want to understand what their employees are doing. A whole bunch of different people who are sort of nervous about it. So how does it work? Well, I set up a virtual machine with a Jupyter server there, and they then log onto that machine and use Jupyter. And it's not bad, not bad, but it's not ideal. And on the last day, so it's a four-day course, on the last day I teach them, we install Python and uh, PyCharm on their computers, then they can do it on their own anyway. What if I could just say, go to this URL, and on that URL, they then have a Python interpreter running in their browser, zero installation, and we can do demonstrations with things in the browser with JavaScript and HTML and CSS. Like suddenly it becomes this playground that's highly interactive and colorized and exciting and fun. I haven't even begun to explore the depths of the possibilities, but the easier installation and the greater possibilities and the faster speed altogether is really a game changer in many, many ways. That is going to be absolutely amazing. For me, it's very hard uh, to imagine that happening. Like writing uh, PyScript instead of JavaScript in browsers. But you're probably right. I mean, I love Python better than JavaScript in any case. <laughs> I think most people exposed to both languages have that opinion. Uh, my 19-year-old daughter who does JavaScript programming in her army service right now, when I told her about PyScript, she was like, oh my God, that would be so much better. Um, and even if, think of it, the JavaScript community and front-end developers are, there's so many of them. So imagine 10% of them switch over to Python, right? Like that's still a massive, massive number of people who will be converting over and changing things and developing libraries and bindings and God knows what. Hmm. 
It's going to be super amazing. And imagine all the data science stuff that you can do in the browser. Like Jupyter no longer will be running on a server in your machine. You'll be able to run it in your browser at full speed. And I mean, there are going to be all sorts of questions then about where is it saved, where is it stored, but just like too many possibilities, like like oodles and oodles of possibilities running there. It's, it's really extraordinary. Onward to taking over the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I should add, like I've been in the Python world for long enough. Never, ever, ever did I imagine it would be this popular, let alone the cusp of this additional possibility, you know, popularity. It's really been uh, quite extraordinary to see. And, and nice, and nice to see as well. Could have happened to a nicer language. <laughs> and then all the Java developers are wringing their hands going, snakes, why does it always have to be snakes? <laughs> but the, the funny thing is, like, I teach a lot of Java developers, and I'll, I'll lump in with MC Sharp developers, although they, they might dislike that, in my courses. And usually, again, if it's a four-day course, so day one, they're like, yeah, 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 whatever, data types, methods, sure. And day two, they're like, okay, like, you know, I guess this can be interesting. Day three, they're like, oh my God, you can do so much in so little code. And yes, it's kind of crazy that there are no getters and setters and protected and private and so forth. But who cares? Look at how much I can do in five lines. And then they get very enthusiastic. So it takes some time. But yeah, people get excited by how much you can do in, in how little time. And then they discover properties and you never see them again because they're <laughs> in the wilds of Python building incredible things and never looking back. <laughs> exactly. Ah, here it is. Reversing transformations. I have to admit, Boyan really brightens up the place. He does, but I think that's just because he's Boyan. By the way, I figured out our special today, matcha bubble tea. And Ruben Lerner is now a potted matcha plant. Ah, don't talk to me while I do this. Do you think it would cheer him up to know he can get 35% off any order from Manning Publications with the coupon code PODBUGHUNT21? He's a plant. I don't think he'll be doing much reading until I get this fixed. Ruben, you're looking a little green there. I don't quite know what's going on here. Uh, care to explain how... <laughs> you did mention it was a an unusual cafe. Yeah, the, the apparently there's some unicorn magic... Uh, going on, then uh, you are now a plant. So uh, I, I assume this is temporary. Um, we usually reverse things like this before you finished your coffee, although I think I might have to pour it at your roots now, your tea. Like, I'll take what I can get. I like to think it more as a feature than a bug with unicorn magic. Yeah, I suppose it is. It is. Um, well, at least your tea's a bit cooler. I'll, I'll, I'll pour some in here for you. Um, it's one of those bugs where we just work around, but don't worry. We'll we'll get you we'll get you changed back so you don't have to try and teach in this condition. Um, so although I mean, with 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 Zoom backgrounds and everything, who would know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what are what are some bugs you've encountered when teaching? I imagine you've you've probably encountered some real doozies. Yeah, well, well, you have the sort of run of the mill bugs that 
usually, usually are based on misconceptions. And what I often tell people is that these problems typically occur because the rules in Python, again, are very, very consistent and very straightforward. But sometimes the combination of these rules leads to surprising effects. So, for example, a good rule of thumb to keep in mind in Python is that if you invoke a method and that method modifies the object, so a mutable object, the method typically returns none. For example, if I've got a list and I append to the list, the append method returns none. If I have a list and I run the sort method on it, sort returns none. How often, though, do I see students say something like x equals x dot append of y, right? So they think that append is going to return the new list or a new list or the list on which they appended things, but instead it's returning none. And people are completely surprised by this. And I say, well, yeah, I can understand your surprise, but again, this is sort of a rule of thumb that's, that's good to keep in mind. So, and like keeping all those factors, okay, mutable object, running a method, the method changes the object, that's typically gonna return none. Um, so people often, when they're sorting things, I try to convince them not to use the sort method on lists, but can't always win. So it'll be like, you know, x equals x dot sort. And I say to them, this is a great way to ensure that you're not gonna run out of memory. However, it's a terrible way to actually sort your data. Um, and this is why I just encourage people to use the sorted built-in function because it's always going to return something. You can chain it if you want. But then you have sort of more subtle, serious things that people can do. Um, and this was not actually a Python thing that I encountered a number of years ago, but it could easily happen in the Python world. So I was doing some consulting at the time. I guess it was like partially consulting, partly training uh, in Ruby, actually, for a company. Uh, but I was coming into the company twice a week to sort of sit with different people, do pair programming, look over the codes, and, and teach. And I get in one of those days and they say, oh, everyone's like running around crazy. I say, what's going on? Oh, it's a good thing you were not here yesterday. Why? What happened yesterday? Well, we pushed our code to production and basically it was an e-commerce site. And every time someone would buy something from them, the e-commerce part, I'm trying to remember, um, the e-commerce part would happen after the mail. So first the email would go out saying, yes, we did it. Um, and then the e-commerce part would happen, like charge their credit card. But they had upgraded the package for sending email. And it turns out that the API had changed in some way. What did that mean? It meant basically that people were getting access to products and were not actually getting charged. Um, and so they had lost like several hundred thousand dollars each of like the day before I got in there and the day that I was there. And how did this happen? It happened because they upgraded a package and didn't test before going to production. They were like, oh, what could possibly go wrong? We just upgraded the package, right? It's gonna have the same API. No, it did not. It's not gonna break anything. Yes, it did. And so the fact that in, coming back to the Python world and requirements.txt, when you have a virtual environment, when you have this, these specifications, you say what version you want, what you're using, very, very important. Right. Don't just say, oh, I'll, I mean, like, it's very easy for me on my own computer to say, oh, whatever version, who cares? Like, work says I'll uninstall, reinstall and whatnot. But if you're actually running a production environment where potentially millions or even billions of dollars are at stake, one of my clients uses Python to test all the hardware that comes out of their factories. Right. And this is a like a chip manufacturer. You got to believe that if they make mistakes with their testing, if their testing just sort of randomly dies and says, yeah, this is probably fine. 
that's going to cost them a pretty penny. So like checking your versioning, checking what packages you have, don't release all the time, just when you know it's going to work, definitely worthwhile doing. You mentioned the sorted thing for a minute. I want to go back to that for a second, because one of the little hobgoblins of Python, I will say, is that it's almost consistent enough that I actually did a whole talk on how like you can apply kind of a functional programming mindset to object-oriented programming in Python by mentally equating the dot operator, you know, a, a method as being almost like assignment to that same object. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you are mutating that object, uh, or you assume you're mutating that object, but that if you're passing it as a parameter, it should never be mutated, that the only parameter to ever get mutated is self. And that's almost consistent, but it does strike me a little bit batty that there are some modules in the standard library that do not follow this convention that will actually return instead of mutating or will will mutate with side effects where you don't expect it. And it's just enough to make it treacherous. Have you run into any of that? Sure that I have, and I can't remember anything offhand, but for sure, it's very nice for me to say, oh, Python is consistent, and here are rules of thumb, and here's the way it works. But at the end of the day, you've got a lot of people working on a lot of stuff, and there's going to be inconsistency. Now, some of that inconsistency is on purpose. So I remember seeing a talk by Raymond Hedinger, I want to say like two years ago or so, where he was talking about, it might have been from before that, and he was talking about sort of contributing to open source, contributing to Python. And he said one of the big things to keep in mind is don't change things that adhere to standards. And I remember him talking about the decimal module, the decimal class and the decimal module. And he said it's really tempting to say we want to change this so it'll be more you know, Pythonic. He said, no, but it's actually implementing an IEEE standard. And so you want it to work in a certain way so that it'll work like other languages. And so I'm guessing that that accounts for some of it, but probably just lots of people, not enough time, not enough eyeballs sort of checking to make sure it's consistent. And even, I don't know about you, in my own code, it's hard to remember to keep things consistent quite a lot of the time, whether it's naming conventions or returning conventions and so forth. That said, I like your idea of only change self and don't mutate your other arguments and like just return things. I like that approach. I've tried to, to approach it that way. When I talk to people about functional versus object-oriented programming, I say my sort of happy medium has now been that in my functions, in my methods, I try to keep them functional, not modifying things so that it becomes simpler, easier to test, easier to understand, even if I'm writing an object-oriented context. But like everyone's going to find their own their own dividing line of where it's appropriate. I just wanted to tell you like my favorite bug story, which is less bug and more like tragic comic uh, occurrence, which is like great fun. Again, now that like many years have passed. So way back when, when I was a student over the summer, I worked at a certain computer company who will just will keep them anonymous and just refer to them by their initials H and P. And basically, I was working for them over the summer doing, like, for medical stuff. And the way it worked then was everyone had their own computer, but we were all connected on the same file system to a central server through NFS. So, what, like, anything that I wrote that I saved on my computer was saved to that central server. And this was, I'm going to guess, like, 1991 or so. 
and a new shell had just come out for Unix called Bash. And I was like, ooh, I definitely want to try this Bash thing. This looks like it could be really good. Well, how do you change your shell? Well, nowadays, of course, I know that on Unix system, you need to do CHSH to change your shell, and it does it for you. But no, 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 I wasn't going to do that. I was going to actually go in and edit Etsy password, because that's what you do to change things on a Unix system. But I wasn't just going to use any editor. I was then, and I'm still now, brainwashed to use Emacs as my editor. So I was going to fire up Emacs and modify Etsy password, change my shell, and finish. But, you know, I, I didn't want the whole GUI version of Emacs. I mean, that would be overkill. I just need it in a terminal. So I used the minus T option for Emacs to open it as a terminal. So I did Emacs minus T of Etsy password. Note, minus T does not open it in a terminal. It opens it as a terminal, treating the file as a device file. So it read an Etsy password, said, what the heck is this? Spat it out and like gave me some sort of funny error message. And I said, okay, like, no, fine. I'll, I'll go back to my work. An hour or so later, someone comes to me and says, hey, Ruben, have, have you had problems on the server? I'm like, why? He says, none of us can become root. I said, really now? So it turns out that by opening Etsy password in Emacs with that minus T option, it had read in the file, said, what the heck is this? Spat it out, except for the first line, which defines the root user. That's right, I'd removed root from the central server used by my development group at work. Um, <laughs> so we were, we were shut down for a good two or three hours while IT tried to figure out what to do. And they like boot our server off of some external hard drive, go back in and add root again. And strangely, they did not give me the root password again for the rest of that summer. So yeah, so that was, that was definitely my like biggest bug or like most exciting one ever. <laughs> wow. That's just, that's terrifying. And... I wonder if that is still a possible bug, like if, if that still happens. I don't want to try it out, but... Right on VM somewhere, I guess, right? But like, yeah. hopefully not. Hopefully not. But basically, who's dumb enough to do that? Oh, yeah, 19-year-olds who don't know anything about computers. And they're like, oh, well, I have work to do, or I could do this cool thing instead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. One time... I was in the sudo mode uh, on the server, and I decided to, to delete uh, local directory where I was uh, changing stuff. Little did you know, I was actually in the root directory. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, I deleted the whole server, and impressively, the PHP pages were working. <laughs> so I had about an hour or so to reinstall everything and set up the server before... Uh, Somebody noticed that things went horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> oh my god. I, I got so paranoid about possibly doing that that I actually went in and I replaced apparently there's a program that'll do this, but I did it myself, is I actually renamed RM, the RM command, to something like RMF or something like that. I renamed the command in the shell and created a new file created a new script called RM in BIM that forced the interactive flag. And I did this for years to get, and I thought it would be a great way to keep myself from accidentally deleting something. But what it wound up doing was just getting me in the routine of typing dash F. So I decided to start 
to stop doing this about about oh uh, gosh, listen, like five years ago, like this is not helping me. So I. I stopped doing that because I thought, oh, this would be great. This would just stop me from it. And then I'm always forcing because I didn't want to go through the interactive thing every single time. And so, yeah, so sometimes our forefathers actually knew a thing or 20, and uh, we should leave well enough alone. But yeah, I mean, the first time you realize that you have the ability to permanently delete something with no possibility of recovery is terrifying. So I think I was in college when like they had some sort of FAQ about RM. And they said something like, wouldn't it be better to do exactly what you said? Like alias it to something and, or maybe like make it move something to a trash, something like that to sort of remove it. And the answer was no, then you'll be tempted and you'll get used to it. And you'll like, you should know that it's permanent and then you'll learn your lesson. I'm thinking, I don't know if that's really true. So the command line level, yes, that's how it works. Although I have definitely gotten to the habit of instead of, unless it's something really trivial, and I have like backups of Wazoo, but basically, unless it's trivial, I don't remove things. I move them to slash TMP, assuming that one of these days it will be removed there, or it gives me a little bit of a grace period that I can go and, and get it back. And I'll even do like MV minus little V uh, to TMP, so like I see the names of the files they're going through. Not that I haven't had my problems, right? Just a handful of days ago, I restarted a, a VM that I use, like that's central to a whole bunch of little things I do in my company the company being me, uh, and it wouldn't restart. Or it restarted, and then like I couldn't log in. And I tried the recovery console and said, can't boot. And I started sweating bullets. I was like, oh, I thought I had everything backed up in the right way, and I guess not. It turns out that it was like a grub problem with the loader on Linux and so on and so forth. And luckily, I was using DigitalOcean, and the help person said, I can't really help you, but you might want to look at this. And that article basically pointed me in the direction of everything I needed, and I felt this incredible sense of success and then I realized that like, for me to have regular backups, it would have been $2 a month. I'm like, oh my God, the five hours I just spent on this clearly, clearly cost me more than the $2 a month would have over not just a year, but more. So always pay to backup, folks. Backup, backup, backup. And Linux is yeah. infinitely savable, it would seem, no matter how poorly you treat it. What's fun for me sometimes when I'm teaching is I'll say, like, don't do X because you'll have problem Y. And not always, but a lot of times someone will say, oh, oh, that's what was going wrong with my code. Right? So, <laughs> so, uh, like, <laughs> so, like, one of my favorite error messages in Python is the unbound local error, where basically it's like inside of a function, you try to say x plus equal 1. So, on the one hand, when you compile the function, Python's like, oh, that's a local variable, no problem. But when you run the function, it says, oh, you want to add 1 to x. x is local. Let's grab the, oh, my God, it's not here, and it blows up. And people just are like, it's, it's amazing how many people work with Python on a day-to-day -day basis, encounter these problems, and like, well, what are you going to do? Weird error. I'll try to work around it somehow. Without understanding what the problem is, the language is trying to tell them what's going on and how to fix it. I'll add, by the way, that there's this fantastic, fantastic module called Friendly. Uh, there's Friendly and Friendly Traceback that are done by, oh, I'm going to mangle his name, so I'm going to look this up here. Uh, yeah, Andre Roberge. And basically what Friendly does is when you have an exception, you can then, especially in Jupyter, it's nice, but you can do it in the command line. It tells you what went wrong, why it went wrong, and suggestions for fixing it. And he has this huge library of 
patterns that he can identify. And whether it's misspelled variable names, it's using the wrong kinds of parentheses, it's using or not using parentheses, all sorts of stuff that people, especially beginners, get wrong all the time. Um, and I've started, I've made just some baby steps to try to do that for pandas as well, like working with him, learning how this stuff works. But I've definitely started using it with my beginner classes. And it's really nice for them not to have to say, hey, what's going on here? But then to know, oh, this is a normal problem. This is what went wrong. I can continue on my own, given that sense of independence and also understanding. I will have to, have to look at that one. Speaking of the removing problem, removing files and directories, I remember I was working on a project where the uh, client wanted this command that was supposed to just kind of delete the cache directory. Like you could specify the cache directory and had a command for being able to, you know, delete, purge the cache on the local file system. Well, the problem is you can, you can specify any arbitrary path for the cache. And it wasn't like it was being stored in a config file somewhere. You were just running it locally. You're specifying it at the top of the command. This is where I want the cache. I did not come up with the spec, I just implemented it. And as I'm starting to implement this purge cache, it occurs to me about five minutes in, oh, if someone passes their project directory <laughs> as the cache, it will recursively delete their project permanently with RM behind the scenes. And I brought this up. Well, actually, I didn't bring it up first because I don't like bringing just plain problems. I'm an engineer, so I'll like see if there's a solution for this. So one thing I thought of, the first thing I thought of was, okay, I can at least check if, you know, make sure that they do not use, they can't create a cache in a directory that has contents already. And then the file is going to, you know, there's, I don't know what else is going to be in the cache, but I know this one file always has to be there. So I'm going to assume that if that file's not there, then it's going to stop deleting. And I brought that up as a, as a possible and the client's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. And uh, anyway, so I start working on that and then I realized one other thing. Oh, the people who are going to be using this are in the habit of moving files around. So they move that one file out to the root of their repository <clears throat> and then just done a run around. So I came back and said, okay, I realized there is this one other situation. Easy fix is this. That cache director has to have a very specific name. And that name is just unlikely to be used by anything else. Actually, no one in the right mind would use this name for anything else. It's the name of the product. Let's use this as the cache directory. And if the directory doesn't have that name, then assume that the user's wanting the cache directory to live in this path that they specified and then create that as a subdirectory. So you only ever delete the subdirectory with that name. <laughs> Unfortunately, I hate to say it, the client got mad because it's like, well, I don't care about preventing the user from doing stupid things. It's like, well, who <laughs> else to build this? Because I do care about the user not being able to do stupid things. But it's kind of that, 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 that interesting that interesting flip side of the coin, like, yeah, I mean, RM, sure, I can kind of understand the logic of why it just is, but then on the other hand, it's like if you're building a user interface, try to avoid handing your user a gun and aiming it at their foot. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, speaking of directories and removing them, I think within a few months of my starting to use Git on a project, I said, oh, this .git directory, it's getting really big. I, I should probably just get rid of this, right? And the, the good news, the good news was I saved a lot of disk space. 
the bad news was, yes, from your reactions, it's clear, you know, uh, my, my, my history of the project was severely limited, shall we say. Um, and the thing is, I had just started using Git, and I sort of figured, okay, I know it's different from SVN. But I was like, okay, .svn files, .git files, or .git directory, must be kind of similar, no? No, 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 not similar. Don't do that. So I, I always warn people when I teach Git classes, don't do that. <laughs> good, good to know. There's a few others in there. You should. It's got a dot in front of it. Think three or four times before you delete it. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. No. That's that's. But that almost reminds me when we were chatting with Seda Kapanulu um, a few months ago. Um, he mentioned writing up writing a compression algorithm and then testing the compression algorithm on the source code of the compression algorithm. And it worked too well. <laughs> Got it. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go listen to that conversation if you want to hear the whole story, but it's beautiful. So. Oh, my God. That's <laughs> crazy. No, it's, sometimes it's the worst. I know the worst deletion I ever did was I was reinstalling Linux on a machine, on one of my own machines. And uh, I was not thinking when I did it, and I checked the box that said format try. I had my files on there. And then I realized I made my mistake. Well, I didn't quite realize my mistake, so I went to go reinstall it again because I was like, well, where's my files? And somehow, in my novicity, I figured, oh, I just need to reinstall it again because I just did the partitions wrong. And so I did it again, formatted it a second time with zero overwipe. I have discovered that test disk works really well. It actually did recover about 90% of my files. I was renaming files for the next six weeks, but I mean, I did get back my irreplaceable data, you know, family photos, manuscripts, wow. etc. But I'm just like, I, 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 I have been hesitant ever since to hit the format button. If I'm working on a computer for a client and they want me to reinstall I'm like okay you see this format button understand this is going to erase everything on your computer I will not press this for you you're going to take the mouse from me you're going to check the box and you're going to press the format button <laughs> I won't press it oh my god oh here was a fun one that, that I did so I had this client years ago years and years ago where they had come up with a new application for the telecom industry and the idea was, and you will not be surprised to hear the company no longer exists, uh, both from the description of what they do and then what happened afterwards. But basically, the idea was they're going to look at the text messages, the SMSs you send, and they're going to apply some semantic analysis to it and add an emoji based on what they see. So if they see, like, if you write, I'm in a good mood today, it'll put a smiley face. And I'm feeling sad, it'll add a sad face. Yes, these people actually did get venture funding. Regardless... They also wrote their code in .NET with SQL Server without realizing that the entire telecom industry uses Unix. So they came to me and asked me, and I can't believe I actually agreed to do this, could you convert our like, .NET code and SQL Server to use Java and uh, PostgreSQL? And I, I was like, at that point, I was doing projects, which meant, sure, I'll do anything. Why not? And I worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And then I actually had to test it. So I set up this test and they had like a test SMS server that I could like run some messages through. So I was, as usual, working from home and I wasn't feeling that great. 
So like I set up the test, went to bed, got up like an hour or two later and discovered that I'd sent like 30,000 text messages through their test system, costing them a fortune, basically. <laughs> it was like, I don't know, a few cents per message, but you know, it adds up. We settled that, like, you know, they had, they had underpaid me. I like said, well, like, we'll call it a, a draw on this front. Anyway, so like after we got over that, that and like the thing seemed to work, I was actually there in their offices. They call up the telecom that had ordered their product. They said, we are totally ready to go. Now we have the Unix version that works with Java and Postgres. And the telecom said, what are you talking about? We use .NET here. <laughs> End of project. End of company. End of story. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And, and the whole world breathes a sigh of relief. Yes. Yes, and, and no one's been using emojis ever since. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we use our own. I mean, I can imagine all these contexts right. in which this could guess the guess the possible, you know, <laughs> the possible semantics wrong. Like, I love feeling like death warmed over, grin. <laughs> you know, if you not understand sarcasm, I guarantee it. <laughs> It was, I think, pathetic would be charitable as a description of the business and the, um, you know, both the idea and the implementation. But hey, when, when you're doing consulting, you encounter all sorts of people with weird, wild ideas who need your help. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Were they by any chance the same people who came up with the Bonzi buddy? I'm just asking because I still remember that. I wouldn't put it past them. Oh, they were ridiculous. Um, I mean, with, with training, fortunately, I get much less of that because typically like it's what we sometimes call productized consulting. They're buying a product from me. It's this one day course, this four day course. And people sometimes switch things around. I'm teaching tomorrow a company that said, well, we want to sort of choose a little bit from here, a little bit from there. Fine. You know, you want to do that, that. That's fine. But it's very, very common for a company to say to me, well, we know that it's a four-day course, but our people are smarter than average. So really, we should be able to do it in three days. And so it's you'll be impressed to hear that every company's people are smarter than average. It's the Lake Wobegon effect for high tech. And basically, I have to convince them, no, like that's just not how the human mind works. And I, I say, I use, and this is true, I use exercises not only as a way for them to practice, but for me to measure how advanced people are, and then I can crank it up or down based on what I see people doing in the exercises. People get through things really, really fast. That's okay. I will give them tougher exercises. Don't worry about it. I'll give them more content. But normally I see that at least like half the people are stumbling, even with the initial exercises. I'm like, okay, okay. Like, I, this, you know, normal people, normal company, not, you know, God's gift to Uber hackers. I, I wouldn't mind that, but it's like has not happened yet at any company, even the like the super smart, well-paying companies and so forth. Yeah, well, I, I imagine the only reason they want three days is so they can pay less. Right, so they can pay less. It, it's it's a combination of pay me less and have people out of work for less time. So, like when I teach in Israel, they insist that I teach either half a day or one day per week, no more so that we don't interrupt people's work schedules. But when I teach abroad, they almost, like outside of Israel, almost everywhere says, of course we want to have it several days in a row. I mean, like that's the only way to do effective teaching. So my, my core, even though I'm not traveling really to training anymore, it's all online. I mean, hopefully we can, we can go back to in-person at some point, but I think international training travel is dead, at least for the time being. But so my, my 
calendar is quite the jigsaw puzzle of trying to satisfy the Israeli clients who want it once or twice a week and the foreign clients who want it several days in a row. But uh, we can dance to the time zones as well and get it to work. Yeah, I, I can imagine that there must be a, a deep temptation when they go, well, our, our employees, can we pay you less for a shorter class because our employees are smarter than usual to go, well, they can't be smarter than usual, they work here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And yes, I, I, and I would never say it about any of my clients, if any of you are listening. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, well, this has been fantastic. And um, it looks like Andy's just about figured out a way to turn you back into a, a real boy. So we'll uh, hang out here and, and uh, we'll turn you back into human shortly. Although I do have to say, you do look good in green. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'll keep that in mind. Thank you again for joining us. You have been an absolutely amazing guest. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed being with you guys. It's fun talking to you. Yeah, it's fun talking to you, too. How hard do you think it would be to give a corporate lecture as a plant? Probably more appropriate a magic show uh, to be a plant than to be a uh, you know to do technical training. No, no, so uh, I think I'm going to stick with uh, what I'm used to. <laughs> These are above average plants. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that that in the time that uh, you've been talking, you have gotten very good at, at gesturing with your leads. I'm impressed. You know. Bogontos Cafe, this is Jess. Oh yes, we're open 24-7 at Bogontos.cafe. And you can also find us on Twitter as Bogontos Cafe. Of course, all our music is provided by Audionautics.com. We have a link on our website. Data science, you say? Well, yes. In fact, you can win a copy of Pandas Workout by Ruben Lerner. For your chance to win, just retweet our Twitter post about it and then follow Bug Hunters Cafe for the announcement of the winner in a few weeks. You're studying what? The statistical likelihood of being turned into a plant? Well, yes, I can say there is definitely a non-zero chance of something like that happening. And we will look forward to seeing you soon. There. I've turned everyone back to normal. Oh, okay. I guess I don't need the watering can of cord brew then. <laughs> <laughs>